Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Welcome to The Rest is Politics Question Time with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. And Rory, we should reward somebody by the name of Simon Beale, because he has been putting this question in week after week after week after week, and he hasn't given up. And in my new book, which I can now show you, Roy, there is my new book, and I've invented a word which is perseverance. Perseverance is the combination of perseverance and resilience. So this guy, Simon, has had the setback of not having his question answered, but he's persevered. And therefore, he's a very persevering character. And his question is quite a tough one. What role does nepotism play in public life? Have you ever been the beneficiary of it and or provided it? Uh, well, I think in, certainly in political life, there's, there's much less, I think, than people outside think. There are, I mean, nepotism, of course, uh, as everyone knows, is about uh, favoring your own family, generally your own kids. Mm. And... What actually has changed in British politics is that it was a very, very strong factor, obviously, in the 19th century. People like Winston Churchill, you know, his father had been Chancellor of the Exchequer, his grandfather had been in Parliament, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, nowadays, there are MPs who have parents in Parliament on both sides of the House, or Labour MPs who have, uh, in fact, it's a Labour MP who's both whose parents were in the House and who I think is, is married to a member of Parliament. Ah, John Cryer. Son of Anne Cryer and Bob Cryer, both former Labour MPs. And of course, he's married to Ellie Reeves, who's the Labour MP for Lewisham West, and whose sister is Rachel Reeves, the current Shadow Chancellor of the Exchequer. How about that? Mm. Anyway, in, on the Conservative side, the people who had parents who were um, in the House of Commons were people like Nicholas Soames, who, of course, was Winston Churchill's grandson, Dominic Grieve. Andrew Mitchell. Richard Bennion. Andrew Mitchell, yeah. And many of these people actually were more on the left of the party. They were in something called the One Nation Dining Club with me. And in a sense, it seemed that the fact that they were children of MPs gave them a sort of, I think, a sort of slightly more left of center type of conservatism, less strident. I mean, Dominic Raab, who we've been talking about a great deal, his dad, Peter, came from the Czech Republic at the age of six on a kinder transport, became a food manager at M&S, died when Dom was 12. So definitely, you know, an example of a very different route, which is, is true of many, many MPs. I guess, I guess, I guess what Simon means by the question in, in relation to nepotism, where maybe it is more apparent, is, is that you do see an awful lot of MPs who employ members of their family. Now, I've, I've spoken to MPs whose wives run their constituency office, and they say actually because they, it means that they don't have to pay them and they just kind of run it and it's almost like it's part of the marriage. But, and then, and you know, one of my, one of my, uh, sons, Callum, he, he worked for the Labour Party um, for a while. And I actually think in a, in a weird sort of way, it, it can be worse for the, for, the, for the child of the person who's well known. I, th I think Callum used to get really fed up at people saying, well, that's Alistair Campbell's son. Um, I think sometimes it can be harder if you're coming from what is perceived as nepotism. My daughter, Grace, who, as you know, is a comedian, she does a whole story about how, which is a true story, by the way. She says that once before a Manchester United man at match, she was, she was in the tunnel as the players were coming out. She says, because that's how nepotism works. Um, <laughs> so you, you can, I think, I think that's the only place where I have 
it's actually been the fact that I can get invited to stuff. And because I'm feeling guilty about not being there when I should be, I, I will phone the kids and say, if I get you, you know, I can get you tickets for this and get you tickets for that. What do you think? I guess that's the sort of nepotism maybe I indulged in from time to time. Good. John, having recently read Prelude to Power and enjoyed it very much, by the way, I was struck by Alice's wavering over whether to leave mainstream journalism and take the job of the Labour Party. It made me wonder if either Rory or Alistair have ever regretted a career move. Well, I regretted, although I regretted the move when I, when I was a journalist, when I left the Daily Mirror to go and work for Eddie Shah's Today newspaper, because I ended up having a nervous breakdown. Um, now, I don't actually regret the overall experience, but I, re- I, I, made, I definitely made the wrong decision in doing that. And I do, re- I, I do regret, I regret not having stood as an MP myself. I do regret that. And I can explain why at every stage of the last 20 odd years or 30 odd years, whatever it is, I've not done it. And I can explain why I don't want to do it now. But, I d- but that, that is something that sort of nags away at me. What about you? Alistair, I want to strongly encourage you to run to be an MP in the next election. It's not far away. It's a good opportunity. Anyway, um, me, my biggest regret is I was running a charity in Afghanistan called Turquoise Mountain. We were restoring the center of the old city of Kabul, which is back in 2008. And I was absolutely loving it, working with a few hundred people, bringing water supplies, sanitation, we built a clinic. And I I built the whole thing from scratch. I'd started with one employee who was my driver, who I called my logistics manager. And we were really making a daily difference out on the ground in Kabul, living there for two, three years. And I then was approached by Harvard University to take a chair, professorial chair at Harvard University and be the director of a center. And I was flattered into doing it. I was just, it just appealed to my ego. I was, I guess. That's what what happened with me. But that's exactly what happened with me. I was flattered into believing that I had it in me to be the youngest news editor in Fleet Street. I was going to be a news editor at 28. And it was a stupid decision. That's exactly right with me. So I thought, this is amazing. I'm, and my case, I was older than that. I guess I was in my mid thirties, but full Harvard professor in my mid thirties. And actually it didn't suit me at all. I would have been, I much, much more enjoyed managing two, 300 people on the ground in Afghanistan than I did trying to run an academic center. Jean-Guy Coté, and he is, I'm guessing from that name, French Canadian, because his question is, it re- and he posted an opinion poll suggesting that the Canadians seem reluctant to have Charles as king. And he says, do you think we could see a surge of rep- republicanism in the Commonwealth in the next few years? So he posted a poll which showed a, a uh, a minority in favour of um, continuing with the monarchy. I, I think it's always a live issue. I think republicanism of all sorts has been a live political issue for many, many years. And in some ways, Britain is unusual still having a monarchy when most countries around the world lost them. There was that famous joke of the, the king of Egypt that in the end, there were going to be only five kings left. The king of hearts, the king of clubs, the king of diamonds, the king of spades and the king of England. <laughs> But I think, and I, I would say this, but I do think that King Charles has approached the job very well. I think uh, Prince William has a good reputation. And I think it's the, the British monarchy is in quite a strong position. I, I don't think there's anything at the moment which is, uh, makes me think that people are able to, to push. But there are Commonwealth countries, of course. I mean, King Charles, when he was Prince Wales, one of the things he had to do last year, I think, was to go out to uh, the Caribbean to visit a country that had decided yeah. they didn't want um, the royal family anymore. I think he dealt with it 
very, very well. I know I don't think there's any sort of resentment there. I think he gave a good speech and engaged well and, and left with very warm feelings. But one thing that's changed, I mean, the Queen, remember, when she took over, went on a, I think, seven-month tour yeah. around all these different places. And I think increasingly the, the royal family are maybe spend less time or have, have maybe spent less time in other places. And I think that the pressures of distance are significant. I've just, I've just found the poll while you were talking, and it's uh, 60% say they don't want Charles as king. Right. It's quite high. Quite high. Yeah, well, but we've but interestingly, these things go up and down, don't they? There was there was a moment in Australia twenty thirty years ago where people really thought that that was going to be the case, and then that seems to turn around again. And I do think I've, even Fiona, who is you know not exactly she's she, she's not on exactly the same page as you when it comes to uh, monarchy, <laughs> glory, uh, but she did say the other day, she's God, could you imagine if somebody like Boris Johnson became an elected president? That's, I think that's a good good line. I think it's it's. I think that's right. I think you would hope that Tony Blair would become the elected president, but it could be Boris Johnson. At which point you do worry a bit. Right. Next question from Discord. So to encourage people to go on Discord. Discord is our stream where debates happening, and it's from somebody who calls themselves not a PhD. Honestly, I can't believe how many times the question of what happened. Why isn't the US the harbinger of democracy anymore? Can be asked on this podcast. And at no point do people wonder, oh, wait, maybe it never was. Maybe the country didn't magically go from sponsoring coup after coup in the 60s, 70s, and 80s to magically being the world force for democracy in the 90s. What do you make of that? I think that is a PhD. (laughs) Not a a PhD. I think there's a great PhD question there. No, there's a very, very fair point in that. Partly because American, less so under Trump, but most American presidents, they talk so much about America as the leader of the free world, as the great democratic force. But actually, there is there is something in that about their about their. You know, we've talked about this a lot. We talked about it with Hillary Clinton. There's a mixed picture about America's America's role in the world. Good, and also this is another chance to plug my favourite book, Norman Mailer's Harlot's Ghost, which is all about the CIA sponsoring these coups at exactly that period. And actually, it's a very essentially making this point, which not a PhD is making, which is in a sense the dark, troubling heart of American democracy is the weird connection between these these authoritarian special operations and its claim to be democracy. Um, Here's a question for you, Uh, Varen. Is Rupert Murdoch losing it, paying out $787.5 million and firing Tucker Carlson, the jewel in the Fox News crown? Is he losing it? Well, he's into his 90s. He's getting on for sure. Um, the Fox News settlement was a, must have been a very, very, very difficult moment for him, but thoroughly deserved because Fox News' entire business model is founded on the exploitation of the three things that we talk about the whole time, populism, polarization, and post-truth. Tucker Carlson is, you know, the questioner calls him the jewel in the Fox, Fox News crown. Tucker Carlson is the is an absolute uh, populist, polarizing, post-truth. And the reason why this became such a, that their settlement with the, the people who'd done the Dominion voting machines. Dominion voting machines, yeah. The reason that's been so damaging is because the the reality was exposed between what they were saying on air, presenting themselves as arbiters of, you know, as they call it, fair and balanced news, bullshit, and at the same time what they were privately thinking, which is, you know, this is absolute nonsense. Now, Tucker Carlson became the 
the guy who was kind of leading that um, on air, as it were, but he wasn't the only one. And the truth is, within that organization, they all knew that that's the game. By the way, it was the game from the word go. Um, and it's why I think, although GB News is, is seen as a bit of a joke by a lot of people, it's why we have to be very, very careful. Um, once you establish that it's normal for a country's main television channel, Fox News, which is watched more now than CNN, when it's accepted that lying and to feed your base, to, to, be, to, be, to be nice to your viewers, to make them hear what they want to hear, that is very, very dangerous. And I think we've got to be very, very careful. We don't get the same thing here. You've interviewed Brian Cox on our leading podcast. Um, and I believe uh, that in the settlement case with Jerry Hall, there was a clause put in saying that she couldn't give any information to the producers of succession. Um, one of the interesting things also I thought we were talking about earlier about uh, speaking truth to power, and I thought an interesting revelation on Murdoch came out of the end of the trial. So at the end of the trial, the general counsel of Fox, which, you know, the senior lawyer, said to Murdoch that he'd done well. He said, I'm just going to say it. They didn't lay a finger on you. And Murdoch has the self-knowledge to disagree. And mm. he pointed a finger at the lawyer who'd questioned him for Dominion. And he said, I think he would strongly disagree with that. And Nelson, who was the man who was doing the questioning, said, indeed, I do. And I thought mm. that was interesting. Mm. With all his weaknesses in his 90s, he's not totally blown up with his own legend. If, if one of his staff is flattering him when he knows he's screwed up, he can still call it out in public. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I, look, I, I did. Um, I don't. Know, I don't like doing those interviews. You know, you do. I'm sure you get asked to do lots as well. Where you do interviews for broadcasters who are preparing obituaries. I, I don't like doing them, uh, but I did do one the other day for for Murdoch, and they're asking everybody at the end, Murdoch, force for good or force for bad over his lifetime. And I'm afraid I was very much force for bad. I think ultimately Murdoch's uh, impact upon politics and media around the world. There were there have been amazing things that he's done. There's no doubt about that. But I think particularly the, the, the impact of Fox News on America and some of his uh, journalistic habits here ultimately have been a force for bad. Yeah. We got a very nice message from a guy called Theo Davis Lewis, who, amongst other things, he's, he's politically active down in Wales, but he, he also writes for the the spectator and he has he wants us to talk about something which has also been raised by i'm going to have to say this in welsh because the name of the person is clearly a, something in welsh but i don't know what it means is ferch sinis i hope that is sort of vaguely anyway the question is this there is so much huffing and puffing about the official adoption of the native banau banau brichenyog do you know about this one roy you can no. still call them the brecon beacons it's okay very little coverage of the main project for dramatic change in policy to combat climate change and tourist pollution damage that should be the story and theo davis lewis has written a piece in the spectator about this so basically the the brecon beacons have been renamed in Welsh, okay, so the official name is... Now, the truth is, according to Theo Davis-Lewis, it always was, and yet it's become the latest sort of woke thing. Nigel Farage is saying, this is absolutely awful, and what on earth are we doing? We can't call them the Brecon Beacons anymore. You can call them the Brecon Beacons, but it is actually part of Wales, and they are, they are calling it this because then they're making it part of a bigger, a bigger thing about uh, tourist pollution damage, and I think it's a very, very sensible 
thing to do. And what I think this is actually is a bit of a kind of anti-Welshness and, and, and also anti-Welsh language. We talked about the language recently. Welsh is one of the top 50 most influential languages in the world, according to the latest edition of the World <laughs> Language Barometer. So let's hear it for the Welsh language, Rory. Very good, very good. That, 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 that maybe was not your best question ever, given that you began answering it from the moment you got to the end of it, having introduced it as a question to me. But we'll move on, move on to a, a next question. Well, you, can, you can still answer it. You can still answer I, it. I think, I think you did a good job. You did a good job there. Um, reaction to Biden visit. Brian Walsh, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts as to the coverage afforded by the British press with respect to the presidential visit to Ireland, North and South. Some has been borderline racist, perpetuating 19th century tropes and possibly revealing more about the individual author's worldview as much as providing any insightful commentary. Is this representative of the state of Anglo-Irish and Anglo-American relations? Well, I, we, we, we touched on this when we were in, in Belfast. I think there is an element of uh, – I think it's more about actually us feeling very unsure in our own identity at a time when the Irish actually feel pretty confident. Um, not least because they're projecting 6% growth and we're sort of limping on along with Russia. So I thought the coverage, some of the coverage in the UK media of Biden's visit was utterly ridiculous. I really do. I know you think he was a bit rude um, to the UK, but I, I just think he's he, he was show, wearing his Irishness on his sleeve. He was welcomed there perhaps more than he had been in, in Belfast. And, and I just think the sort of, you know, the Andrew Neils and the GBBs people just threw their toys out the pram. I, I was talking to a, somebody in Belfast while we, while we were there, just when I was out on the streets, and he felt, for what it's worth, a real sense of hurt that Biden hadn't engaged more. He very much felt that the US had been absolutely vital to the Good Friday Agreement, as, as you very much say, very much acknowledge. And he was very sad that he felt that Biden wasn't leaning in harder, spending more time in Northern Ireland, getting directly involved. Um, mm. and, and I think that, 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 that was striking that he seems to have sort of, instead of doing what I think would have been more Clinton style, which is to roll his sleeves up and say, okay, I'll get involved. He seemed to be more saying, sort yourselves out, or if you don't, I'm not going to make a proper visit. Well, I think he'd, I think he'd done, he would argue, I think that he'd done the sleeves rolling in Washington when he met the parties and tried at the number 10's behest to try and get them over the line because he's told that was that that's what what it required and then when that why didn't not spend happen, a day or two using his immense political capital and influence on the ground in Belfast at that critical time? The, 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 I don't know the answer to that, um, but there was all this talk about there was going to be a state dinner and King Charles was going to go and all that kind of stuff. I don't know is the answer, but he was always going to do that trip to Ireland, um, and I think that. You know, I, I, he, look, the truth is he's the president of America. He probably gets asked to go to every country in the world every day of the week. He has to make judgments about how he uses his time. The other thing, the optics, I think, they may have thought that the optics of him being around around the Good Friday Agreement at a time when Bill Clinton was there, Hillary Clinton was there, George Mitchell was there. It, it, there is an argument that it would look like he was trying to insert himself into something that was actually about something else. I don't know. Here's a good one, Rory, for you. I, I, you can definitely answer this one. I, I, I will just be quiet. Gibson Fender. Is Tony Blair still the best politician in the UK? Unpopular opinion, for sure. But who, since he <laughs> left, has been better? <laughs> Come on. Uh, I, I remain extremely grumpy, uh, like many of us, about the Iraq war and think that revealed something troubling about him. At the same time, obviously, spending more time with you and seeing a bit of him I have been very, very struck by his energy, his intelligence, his skill at communication, his commitment 
Um, so I think you, you mount a very, very um, powerful defense. Is, is the question who's the best politician or the best ex-prime minister? Well, the question is who since he left has been better? Well, it's very difficult to, to compare people who've not been prime ministers to people who've been prime ministers, haven't, haven't they? Um, or would you say any of the prime ministers have been better? No, I'm probably not as an effective prime minister, although I would say that I, I have a much profounder affection for Theresa May. I, 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 I know you do. I, I, I like her very much as a person. I think she's a wonderful kind of, I love her values. I will say as well for Theresa May, when you couldn't stay to do Mary McAleese, but Mary McAleese was very, very nice about Theresa May. Alison, lots of questions there, including some quite serious ones we're going to get onto. So let's just take a quick break. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the Restless Politics Question Time with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. Charlie O'Neill. Yep. As you've both done many, many TV and radio interviews over your careers, what would you say are your favorite and least favorite TV or radio shows to go on and why? Well, I don't particularly like the comedy shows. So I did things like Have I Got News For You, but I, I feel a bit weird as a politician going on to what's fundamentally a comedy show. Yeah, I played my bagpipes on that one. Well, there we are. You see, it's a good, good decision, good decision, always good decision. Um, if only I'd stuck to the piping a bit more and been a bit more serious, I would have been much more successful. Um, I think I always enjoy the Today programme, love doing the Today programme, happy doing Newsnight, love hard talk. Question time I quite enjoy. How about you? I, I like the ones that I really, really like the Late Late Show in uh, Dublin. Um, always enjoyed doing that. I, I like, I do like the longer form ones. Um, I know what you mean about the comedy of things, but I like the ones 
where you can kind of not be tr- – the, the, the trouble with Newsnight and the Today program, those programs, I think people just go into a mode. The interviewers are in a mode. The interviewees are in a mode. I do remember when my first book came out, and, of course, I'd had a lot of trouble with the Today program over the whole Andrew Gilligan that led to the Hutton Inquiry, David Kelly's death, etc. So when my first volume of Diaries came out, I was like the 810 interviewee on the Today program with John Humphreys. And I think I'm right in saying it's the only time they ever went through the news and the sport. They just kept going. I think John Humphreys was determined just to keep going until I either lamped him or I lost my (laughs) rag or or whatever. So I I like it when you do have a bit of – that's why I enjoy this podcast. I like it when you've got a little bit of time to explain, to explore. But I think the Late Late Show is, is, I I would put down as uh, one of my favorites. Talking to bagpipes, bagpipes, Rory, Aileen Pierce, where have you most enjoyed playing the pipes? either because of the location, the audience, or the occasion. And Aileen says, you'll find that the correct answer is Hillsborough Castle Throne Room. This was where I played the lament that I wrote for the, the departed yeah, um, peacemakers, yeah. for Mo Molum and David Tremble, etc. I played it to, there was a, the, after you left on the Thursday, there was a really nice event at Hillsborough Castle, um, which is the official residence of the king, I guess, in Northern Ireland. And it was for school children from across the divide, as it were, from all over Northern Ireland. And I, and I played it there. And it actually, for me, it is often about the acoustics. The acoustics in the hall in Belfast were great. The acoustics in Hillsborough Castle were great. Um, I go every year to play the bagpipes at Charles Kennedy's grave. Um, and I do that partly out of friendship, but also to be honest, because it's one of the most beautiful burial grounds in the world. And, uh, I, maybe this is my depressive character, but I do have a bit of a, I do love a lament. I love a good lament. Where have you most enjoyed playing the pipes? Well, I think the worst, the worst place I played the pipes was in Hong Kong because I found some of the humidity was really screwing around with my, my reeds and my drones. Yeah, they have. Trying to think what well, the best place is. Home in Scotland's probably the best place. But unlike you, I'm really, really bad. I've only played in big pipe bands where my lamentable performance can be disguised by the noise of the other people around me. Um, betting markets are giving Kamal. Kilij Darulu, a 60% chance of winning the next Turkish presidential election. So that's the leader of the main opposition party. Mm. Do you think this is a reasonable estimate of his chances? What happens if he wins? So very, very interesting turnaround, partly sparked. Mm. I think we, when I was in southern Turkey in the earthquake zone, we talked a little about bit the about earthquake, yeah. the ways in which the response to the earthquake might have affected Erdogan's position and popularity. Thoughts on Turkey? Well, first of all, I think it, I'm right in saying, this is my, my son Rory speaking to me now, the real Rory, because he knows a lot about betting markets. And I think in general, betting markets tend historically, this is certainly the case in America and Britain, they tend historically to be more accurate in their predictions of elections than the polls. That's the first thing I'd say. Now, I think Turkey's probably a bit different. I think if that is how the betting markets are looking at it, then and the polls are kind of in roughly the same place, then what that says to me is Erdogan will do absolutely everything he has to do to try to turn that around. And I suspect that I wouldn't, I I think a 60% chance of winning sounds great. Um, But I think to oust him, you're going to need more than that at the start of the campaign. Um, If he wins, that's a massive, massive, massive change. I mean, in a way, I think that in a way, the Turkish election may be the most important in the world this year. Well, just to, just to remind people a little bit about about what's going on here. Um, so he's the leader of the CHP, which was the traditional ruling party 
uh, sees itself back to Kamal Ataturk, was close to the military and was the ruling party that was basically displaced by Erdogan's party, which was more of an Islamist party and more of a party that applied uh, appealed to people who the poorer, um, the more religious elements in society. So, and the CHP was destroyed really by Erdogan and has been rebuilt uh, by Kilic Darolu, who is a man who very, very, you know, intellectually strong, was a senior civil servant, has had an extraordinary life as a politician. I mean, he's, he's sort of, we, we were staying in the Europa Hotel, which has the record for being the, when we were in Belfast, you and I have the most attacked hotel in the world. But he has to be one of the most attacked politicians in the world. He's been, you know, punched in parliament. His convoy has been hit by missiles from the PKK. He was then bombed by the Islamic State. Somebody tried to lynch him at a soldier's funeral. So I think he's somebody who has managed to, with a very quiet manner, unite the six opposition parties behind him mm. and has made a brand of technocratic calm. And, and it will be fascinating to see him come through. He's a deeply reassuring figure. Mm, mm. Okay, Matthew Hisband, how do you and Rory feel about government ministers dressing like this, I'll explain in a minute, and using this type of rhetoric on social media against disabled and vulnerable people while the likes of Michel Moan laughs at the gullibility of the country while stealing millions? And this is something I commented at at the time. This is a guy called Tom Purseglove who is a minister in the DWP. And when, he, when, he talk, when the, the Matthew talks about ministers dressing like this, he's wearing like a police flak jacket. It's got DWP on it. And he's basically saying, we're going to get you. If you're cheating your benefits, we're going to get you. And as somebody said on in the media, he, he looks like he's trying to look like Liam Neeson in Taken. He looks like a kind of, you know, robocop <laughs> out to get people. And there were two things. Well, I did think it was um, it was – Tension-seeking, unnecessary, and 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 there there is, as Matthew points out, the massive contract contrast with the lack of action going against people who've actually ripped off massive sums for the public purse, not just a few quids here and there and benefits. But the other thing that really troubled me was that his his Twitter handle is at vote purse glove, and this video was posted on a DWP government site. Now. We're in a local election period. To have your Twitter handle as at vote and then your name, even though you're not standing as a candidate, I'm afraid that, that to me, Simon, we saw Simon Case in Belfast, somebody in the civil service needs to get a grip of the relentless, in small ways and large ways, politicization of the resources of the state. You cannot have a handle of vote purse glove and have that promoted by your government department, in my humble opinion. That seems good. Okay, final question for me, because I think we're coming to the end here. Grace, I'm expecting my first child and have found that since being pregnant, I've become utterly obsessed with the news. I can't stop reading, scrolling, listening to all things news, which inevitably is more bad than good. I feel it's the important and responsible thing to do to be up to date on what's going on in the world. But I'm having dreams about war and the future of the planet, all that fun stuff. Do you have any tips on avoiding news anxiety? Did you find becoming parents altered your news consumption or your reactions to world events? My advice, Grace, is read books, not newspapers, and listen to music, not the news. And, and our podcast. You, you don't think our podcast is contributing to her anxiety? I hope not. I think, we try, I think we've got quite calming voices. No, I, I, th I can see that. But I, I, I honestly, I know 
because we, you and I try to stay reasonably well informed, okay? But I don't read newspapers. We don't have a single newspaper delivered to our house. I feel terrible saying that having been a journalist, but we don't. I don't, I very rarely watch the news. I don't feel that there's much going on that I don't know about because big stuff you get to hear about. And I think it's actually deciding what you're interested in and then kind of trying to explore that in greater detail. And I'm serious about reading books, not newspapers. I got more. You've mentioned a couple of books that you read ahead of going to Belfast, for example, David McCutrick's book on the Troubles and the one you talked about earlier. And likewise, that book, if I were to say to somebody, right, you want to try and get inside what's happening in Northern Ireland, um, or you want to get inside Europe, there's some amazing sort of books on the history of Europe. You're going to learn more than you are by reading some nonsense in a newspaper. So, Grace, books, not newspapers, music, not the news. And I'll, I'll finish with just answering a question from Harrison. Where do you find the best place to get your news from? I've been promoting a lot, and I like to c- keep promoting the New York Times on international news. And always look at Al Jazeera. Always worth looking at Al Jazeera. They do a surprising amount of serious reporting on places that other people are not reporting. Mm. My final question is from Sarah Kate, and this allows me to do something which I don't normally do. You normally do it for me, which is to plug my book, which I finally got in my hands, the real thing. And very beautiful, beautiful book. Yeah. But the thing is, Sarah's question suggests, Roy, that despite you plugging my book relentlessly on this podcast, as I promised to return the compliment when yours comes out in September, I think she slightly misunderstood the book. She says, you keep talking about engaging young people, which is really important, but we all need to be engaged in politics and probably loads of people from a mixed range of ages ages aren't engaged. Is it still worth them reading, but what can I do? How do we engage everyone? Of course it is. What can I do is all of us. What can all of us do? And the answer is we have to do whatever we can do. Everybody read that book carefully and we'll take some questions on the book. In fact, we'll question you to make sure you've read it carefully enough. In the newsletter, both you and I, Rory, are going to do a thing through the rest is politics where people can get signed copies. We we will explain in the newsletter how that gets done. Very good. Okay. Thank you all so much. Bye-bye. See you soon. You were probably signing your own death warrant. Well, probably, but I'd moved into damage limitation mode. Who killed Liz Truss? I'm Robert Peston from The Rest Is Money, and we've been telling the story of the worst financial crisis faced by a British government for 50 years. The consequence of the catastrophic mini-budget. And now I'm talking to the Prime Minister at that time of extreme chaos, Liz Truss. Over the course of two episodes, I ask her what she knew and when, how much responsibility she takes for the crisis, who she blames, and of course, who killed Liz Truss. Listen to The Rest is Money now, wherever you get your podcasts.